0: I want to tell you my secret now. My secret. I see
1: death. Silent and is people! No, I am the father of all. What's in the box? You did it! it! You blew it up! Blew it up! Damn you, all. Hello, and welcome to Slate Spoiler Specials. I'm Matthew Dussam, Browbeat's Nights and Weekends editor at Slate, and I'm joined by Laura Miller, books and culture columnist for Slate. Welcome, Laura.
0: It's great to be here.
1: Today, we're going to spoil The Woman in the Window, which is hitting Netflix this weekend. It is the newest movie from director Joe Wright, and it is an adaptation of the 2018 novel by A.J. Finn, which is a pseudonym for Dan Mallory, uh, the author of the original. So let's just get right into it. What uh, what did you think of it, Laura?
0: Well, I have been really interested in The Woman in the Window as a kind of classic example of a particularly popular genre of thriller at, at present. You know, I, I read the book when it was sort of at the peak of its bestsellerdom, and it was interesting because it had a lot in common with a book by Paul Hawkins called The Girl on the Train which was another huge bestseller and these books are usually you know presented as sort of the daughters of Gone Girl although they are fundamentally different from Gone Girl in important ways but The Woman in the Window is is almost it's almost written to formula
1: <laughs> yeah
0: after uh the Girl on the Train. And I was curious to see if it would be effective at all as a movie. And in, in some ways, I thought it was. I mean, there are certain th- aspects of the book, which for some reason, I remember <laughs> very clearly. I was I was just telling some colleagues that it's like with the books that I, are not that important to me, I usually just forget everything about them right away. But for some reason, I really remembered this book very clearly. Um, and so I did think through the whole thing, oh, this is sort of works better in the book or this doesn't work better in the book. I mean, it looked, it it clearly had this Hitchcockian flavor to it, but then it didn't exactly have the high style of Hitchcock. So it seemed like a kind of, kind of interesting, you know, not... Um, not bad but not it didn't wow me what about you matt
1: yeah i uh i feel kind of the same way i thought it was i read the book just over the weekend and i thought it was yeah as you say written to formula but kind of i don't know i felt about i thought it was like not a very good novel and just an unbelievably smart career move for dan mallory <laughs> like it was it was it it felt like the book had been kind of re- reverse constructed from you know what are people buying what are people reading or whatever like you say it's modeled after the girl in the train but it's kind of it's got like four twist endings right it's like it's like he started with a list of big moments and twist endings in books from the first page it's obvious like oh this is going to become a movie it's written in that sort of style and it's an open invitation for a director to attach themselves to it and do a love letter to Hitchcock you get to play uh, somebody with mental illness who's drinking so actresses are going to want to get attached Uh, you know they got Gary Oldman to play the psychopath it's like you couldn't you couldn't do a better build to order. Like, this is that, this is what people want.
0: And not only that, but cheap to make because it's all set in yeah,
1: one location. Oh, wow. Like, like, yeah. like literally it's just like, yeah. it, it. it's like, they took the requirements, the things people were saying, this is what we want from these books and, and just, and just built it. And I mean, I feel about it. Like, like Ian Holmes character feels about the alien and aliens. It's just like, you, you know, it's not about enjoying it or anything. It's just sort of a, uh, a an, an unstoppable killing machine as far as like, wow, this is going to sell for a lot of money. Yeah. And I thought that the, the movie kind of, to me, felt like, yeah, well, I guess someone took the bait, but there's not really, you know, enough idiosyncratic or enough that's not just like pure lean formula to, to, to really do anything that interesting with it. And I thought that was sort of its problem.
0: It it has, you know an amazing cast, yeah. Um, it's got Amy Adams, it's got Gary Oldham, it's got Julianne Moore, and it's got Wyatt Russell, whom I love from being in one of the greatest TV shows of all time, Lodge 49, which I just <laughs> had to get in there. <laughs> one of
1: um, these days, I got to give back to that. Oh, right.
0: Um, and, and you know, hey, he's such a charming actor, and the part just doesn't give him really anything to work with at all. I mean, Amy Adams acts up a storm she's visibly falling apart she's you know she's sympathetic and yet you can absolutely see why nobody believes her when she says that the um that the woman who lives across the street from her she's she's seen this woman murdered through the window you know and she has just enough of this little filament of her old sort of robust self left that she can be protective about this teenage boy that lives across the street, which of right. course is her downfall. Yeah, <laughs> and, um, and Gary Olam is, is believable both as this sort of scary person and as a person whose scariness is actually the result of this misguided um, paternal Protectiveness, which doesn't is actually an element of the book that is not really portrayed in the movie. But maybe we should just talk a little bit about what goes on in the movie.
1: Yeah. So the movie, the movie covers it's set over there's like an epilogue, but it's like eight days basically in the life of this Amy Adams character. So yeah, let's just talk through it. So we open up with like just. You know, like snow falling towards the camera and there's our there screams on the soundtrack and then snap cut to Amy Adams waking up in her amazing house um, somewhere in, in New York City. I think it's in Harlem, which we tour. She's got four stories to herself uh, in the basement. There's an apartment that she's renting out to a tenant named David, who is played by Wyatt Russell, as he said. So, yeah. So the first day we kind of follow her around her apartment as or house, whatever townhouse as she's having a phone conversation with her estranged husband and daughter and watching some new neighbors move in. She then, she meets with her therapist and we get an exposition dump that, about the fact that she's agoraphobic uh, after some sort of unspecified trauma. She tells her therapist, who's played by Tracy Letts, who actually wrote the screenplay, that uh, that she's not drinking. That's not actually the case um, because she's on a bunch of psychotropical medicines. As soon as he leaves, she gets drunk and we see her doing her usual kind of spying on the neighbors thing with rear window situations. Um, and then one of the neighbors comes over and that's, that's Ethan uh, Fred played by Fred Heckinger, who is the teenager who moved in across the street. He's come over to bring Anna a lavender candle and they kind of hit it off, but he's super duper shy. So that's day one. She then goes and watches Laura. There's, she's kind of obsessed with classic movies.
0: Yeah, It's like, it's like old, it's Hitchcock, but it's also sort of your classic forties era film noir. So I think she watches Laura at one point.
1: Yeah. It, Laura, Rear Window and uh, Dark Passage, I think.
0: Dark Passage. Yes.
1: The movie kind of lifts this concept from Rear Window. So um, whether or not it has the clips in it, it's, it's definitely haunted by that film.
0: It's absolutely. I mean, Mallory was very clear that he had deliberately borrowed that concept from Rear Window.
1: I mean, you know what I, what I kept thinking of reading the novel, of course, is that if you are trying to sell something to the movies, you could do worse than have a love letter to classic movies buried in it for the development executives flipping through, <laughs> well, who presumably also like classic movies, which is why they're reading it. I mean, all of it was just, you know, it's either cynical or ingenious, depending on <laughs> on what uh, what you think you should be doing when you're writing a novel. But okay, but back to it. So that's our first night, New Neighbors. And then the next night is, uh, it's Tuesday, and that is Halloween. In uh, her neighborhood, and we meet David, her tenant, for the first time. Um, he's apparently like running errands for her. And that night, some kids start egging her house, and she goes outside, tries to go outside to interrupt them, has an immediate panic attack, and comes back to consciousness on her couch and finds that Julianne Moore, a blonde Julianne Moore, has brought her home and brings her some brandy to kind of, you know, get her head back together. And they sort of hit it off and spend a night uh, or a couple of hours drinking and shooting the shit, basically, she tells Jane Russell, quote, Jane Russell, end quote, Julian Moore's character tells uh, Anna about her son, Ethan, and says it's awfully separated from a kid. And they kind of bond over that. Um, and a little bit after she leaves, uh, Gary Oldman, who's the frightening patriarch of the family, Alistair Russell, uh, comes over and asks Anna if any of his family has been there. Um, and she lies and says no. And that's, that's Tuesday. So at this point, she's met the Russell family. So, and that sets up this kind of situation, you know, a rear window scenario, basically. She's she's involved in these people's lives, although they're not really uh, her neighbors. Did you think that setup worked or what did you think of the Russells in there first?
0: Y- yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, what, what, the, what the movie is good at establishing is that she's maybe recovering a little bit. You know, her therapist s- takes her curiosity about her neighbors. Clearly, she shares all of her observations with him. So at the very beginning, we see him, you know, asking her for updates on the people across the street who she's not, she sees them through her front windows, not her rear windows, but it's basically the same thing. You know, these different compartments that she can see, you know, across the street and these lives that she observes, even while she doesn't really have any kind of life, you know, she's, she's quote, separated from her husband and, and daughter. And, in the book, you, you know, that he kind of gets you to believe for a while that, um, that maybe they're separated because she is so ill and he, you know, maybe he's taken the daughter off somewhere to live. But I mean, one of the things I thought worked well in the movie is that you realize pretty quickly that these are just voices in her head, not actual conversations that she's having. And, uh, because we never see her talking on the telephone with them. And in the book, this that sort of revelation was like strung out for so long that it just felt like, come on already, I know they're dead. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I got very impatient waiting for that, quote, twist, unquote, so that then the plot could go someplace more interesting. But in this, I feel like it's pretty obvious in the movie that She's not, you know, she's not really having these conversations with anybody. So so then she actually becomes involved. Like, this is the first of these people that she becomes involved with, partly because of the boy and his charming ways. And, um, but mostly because um, the woman she thinks is Jane Russell is just caring for her in a particular way that, you know, respects the fact that she, you know is is sort of impaired, but doesn't treat her like a crazy person. So it's like these are like the little tendrils of her recovery. And then of course, it all goes terribly wrong shortly thereafter. but I, I thought that was well established. And again, we've got these amazing actors, and I think they're all really good at finding the emotional, you know, kernel of this dynamic.
1: And and it is, it is a kernel. I would say
0: <laughs> I know, but you know, it's it's yeah. nevertheless, it's there. You know, no, it's I mean, not... definitely the
1: actors are are acting their hearts out in this and, and yeah. doing what they yeah.
0: And I also think that the house is kind of a great set. I mean, yes, obviously it's like a what a four million dollar house.
1: Right, so right. you
0: do sort of wonder how on earth did she get this and why is she still there? Um you know, like, how could she pay the taxes? Because she doesn't appear to be working, although she tells Jane that she counsels people, which is, and then Jane laughs, you know, because it's clearly ridiculous that this completely um, kind of crushed person could be um, helping anyone. But they do have this kind of equal back and forth there. And it also establishes that the theme of the whole movie is the sort of treachery of you know, parental love, you know, that that you are sort of helpless before it, which I feel like did not really get paid out in the end, because we need to understand that Alistair is actually just trying to protect his son.
1: Yeah, no, I I, I agree with that. That just didn't come across. I mean, one of the things that's different in the book is they've, they've, two things. One is that one thing I was thinking about watching this, particularly in the early parts, is that Rear Window kind of sets up these side plots that jimmy stewart is observing there's the musician who's trying to make money there's you know uh, the dancer in the other apartment who's fending off suitors there are these just sort of like ongoing things that he's observing and this you get to see like a a prayer group for a second but there's no it doesn't have any any room for that kind of like richness or 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 speed it's all really pared down and even compared to the book there are entire side plots they just totally killed there's um in the book, she has a relationship with a physical therapist who's helping her recover. Who's coming over all the time, and that role was cast. So they must have shot something with it, but she's she's missing here. And she also is spending her time in in the book. Sort of, she is counseling people. She does it on an online thing, and that's just gone completely. That's been been completely uh, excised. And in that sense, I mean, I find that I find that sometimes less satisfying. I mean, I, I, I mean, it's the alien thing again. There's nothing wasted in this movie, but. Um, waste a little, you know, like <laughs> let's, uh, let's set this in a neighborhood where the other people, uh, matter. Cause that's one of the things that's so great about rear window is you get this just kind of like uh, group portrait at the same time as you have this thriller propelling things along. And, and you don't.
0: Exactly. You get this whole feeling of a neighborhood right. that, um, you see, it doesn't seem weird that he is so fascinated by it. You know, I mean, it seems, and he, I mean, he has his problems, the, the hero of rear rear window, but he's not a complete basket case like Anna Fox is. So, um, so yeah, she's got, you know, she's got the lights are low, the house is like visibly sort of dank. It's got these, high ceilings that kind of dissolve into shadow, you know, it's, it's like a haunted house and she's the ghost.
1: Yeah. no, yeah, totally. Well, that, and it, it has kind of a, all of the rooms are kind of monochromatic, which reminded me a bit of a, a mask of the red death sort of thing that she's, she's sealed in here with the, yeah. there's a blue office and a peach bedroom and a, a pink room somewhere. I mean, they're all, whatever room she's in, that's the color it is.
0: Yeah. It's very, it's, it's got a morbid cloistered air to it. So we don't see much of her efforts to go outside. But then when she uh, is looking across the street, she's gotten the impression that something is off in the Russell household. And then she sees the woman she thinks is Jane in a dispute with someone. And then she sees that Jane has been stabbed, but she doesn't see who the perpetrator is through the window. So she calls the cops and, you know, she's... Trying to convince them that 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 she's seen someone murdered, and then um, Alistair Russell produces his wife, who is a completely different person, and she, you know she won't believe it, and she protests, and she you know has these different sort of clues, and uh, that she feels will pr- you know she's got a photo, and then she's got this drawing that that quote Jane unquote made, and she tries to convince people. There's a kindly police detective and an unkindly police detective. And then ultimately, you know, she just gets, you know, She well, she does, the other thing that kind of pushes her to the, to the brink beyond the fact that she, she comes to believe that she hallucinated this woman is also someone emails her a photo of herself asleep on the sofa. And so she knows someone's been in the house, which is a development in the storyline that is not actually um, compatible with her scenario, which is that somehow Alistair has killed his wife and then brought in this imposter and then somehow intimidated his son into to accepting as as his mother when she's not. But she's so sort of wigged out that she can't figure out why, you know, someone would do something like that. And, and she just is so, so far over the edge that she finally will also the, the cops then come forward and just sort of say, your, your family is dead. Your family is dead. Your family is dead. And that helps precipitate this break and she is getting ready to commit suicide
1: yeah she comes to believe that they the police believe that she's made up the entire thing and she she comes to believe them too because she's been so drugged and drunk and so on and so forth um and uh yeah what did you think of the scene that scene where they you know the big reveal or whatever uh that Joe Wright played that really big i mean there's uh Amy Adams gets this um lengthy sort of monologue where she lays out all her accusations in this um uh, just very stylized uh shot kind of, uh, she kind of steps away from everyone else into the frame and it, it there's this real slow push in on her to a close up of her face. And then we go to the flashback and we finally see how her family died. But um, did that, did that work for you? That section?
0: I thought the, 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 that the scene where the unfriendly detective says, I'm sorry, your family is dead. I'm sorry. Your family yeah, the, is the, dead. The,
1: the, the Mrs. Danvers detective, I think is the,
0: <laughs> you know, again, this is like a really sleek Um, well-constructed thriller that does not have a whole lot of Maybe soul to it beyond the performances. And this, that was one of the few really clumsy notes was this, you know, like in what situation would someone say, I'm sorry, your family is dead. I'm sorry, your family is dead over and over again, like
1: that? A, well, a Hitchcock movie, a dream. <laughs> I think that's just the answer to that.
0: I guess it's supposed to look like that. You know, one of the funny things about the difference between like a Hitchcock movie and this is that Amy Adams hasn't, you know, I'm sure she has some makeup on, but she basically has she looks as if she's wearing no makeup. So right. she's kind of the complete opposite of the kind of woman that you would see in a Hitchcock movie or a man, you know, she does not have this almost sort of burnished stylized, you know, flawless beauty that then is thrown into the conflict with these like crazy acute angles and weird wrenching music and, and, you know, disorienting camera moves. And, um, and, and it, so it's sort of like you recognize it as sort of a Hitchcock move, but it, it, it sort of without that, the sort of beauty of yeah. the beauty that is always in contrast with the disorder and the violence in the Hitchcock movies, it doesn't really have the same impact. I mean, she seems pitiful more yeah. than anything else.
1: Yeah, I uh, yeah. That, I mean, that that was the scene for me where the movie just just kind of uh, lost me. It just struck me as very clumsy. There were, there are a lot of, you know, after those shots, there are these reaction shots of the rest of the cast, and they're posed like like it's a Sopranos promotional poster or something. It's like everyone standing <laughs> doing like a a pose like their characters, and 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 the realization that you come to seeing that is like a, you know, you don't have enough going on here to sustain this kind of artificiality. And B, I don't, I don't care about any of these people. <laughs> like The point of those poses is it's like, oh, what a gallery of rogues. But uh, for me, it was kind of like, yep, nope, don't care. Don't care. Don't care. You know, check, check, check the list there.
0: Yeah. That, that, that scene was not handled well. And in a way um, I can see how it might work without the flashback, you know, like if it was a story that, somebody right. told. And so every time we saw the snow in her nightmares, we would know it's a reference to that, but it wouldn't be so literal. But yeah. you know
1: Well, I mean, this is so literal that when it comes back to the flashback, her crash car is literally like in her living room.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: A, I mean, it really just goes goes all out on the let's let's present I mean, a fractured
0: okay, but in defense of it, I guess, you know, what we could say is that what we're seeing there is her, you know, she's looking at this accident for which she blames herself. And it's also almost like on a stage that everybody else is looking at. Right. And so it's part of her feeling is that not only does she blame herself for this thing, not only is this a traumatic memory that's being visited on her, but everybody else is witnessing how it's her fault.
1: Right, right. I
0: mean, I think that.
1: Yeah, you can. That
0: Part of the effect of that scene, I've, although I mean, I, I agree, it's not it's not a well handled scene, and I think it's just because a lot of plot that's sort of stretched out in the book is is being kind of compacted into this this one scene.
1: Right. So yeah. So there's that moment where she kind of comes to believe that she's she's imagined it all. She apologizes to everybody, um, and then. Uh, the next day, yeah, as you said, she starts preparing to, to 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 kill herself. But while she's doing that, she flips through her phone photos, looking at old pictures of her her family, her daughter, and uh, husband. Oh, I should we should mention, of course, it also comes out that the reason she sort of is to blame for the death of her—I mean, to the extent anybody is—for the death of her 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 daughter and and uh, husband, they're driving because she's had an affair. They're trying to have some kind of last vacation with their daughter they get into a fight and her phone rings apparently it's from the person she's having an affair with uh and that's also a whole subplot that, get, that is in the book but is cut out here and And they go off the road in her you know fighting uh immediately after her husband has said yeah i do blame you for this you were the person having an affair um yeah. she uh, kills them all so a lot of uh a lot of guilt there um and not necessarily you know entirely uh unjustified, but, but yeah, so she's a mess. So she's, she's, she's going to kill herself. Um, But as she's flipping through the old photo, she sees a photo. She took the night she was hanging out with Jane Russell, uh, a picture of her cat. And there's a reflection of Jane's face in the wine glass. And at that point, she's like, Oh no, this actually did happen. So uh, the first person that she shows the photo to is David, her tenant. He comes up, looks at it and is like, well, that's great, but I don't want anything to do with any of this because she had accused him to the police of, you know, being involved.
0: That's when they realize, or that's when actually, that's when Anna realizes that the woman was not Jane Russell, but Ethan's birth mother, this woman named Katie, who is like a kind of a druggie who is pestering the Russell family. And that's the reason why they had to leave Boston and not because uh, Alistair Russell did something shady. And that David had a one night stand with her, which is why she found this earring in his room, which is another early clue that she has, that she comes up with, you know, to prove that Jane was real, but (laughs) doesn't convince anyone because she just found an earring, right?
1: That that scene is like one of the, I think the book handles it better, but that's one of the points where I was just like, oh, come on. Because if David knows that Ethan's birth mother has been there, has been trying to reach Ethan and spent the night with him, uh, and then sits through that other scene where, they're having all of these conversations about whether or not Ethan's mother is dead or alive and doesn't volunteer. You know, do you mean the birth mother who's been here running around the neighborhood for the last few days? Like,
0: yeah,
1: e- like, like that last scene just doesn't work once you know that he knows that she exists, the yes. car crash flashback. Yeah. But before we can like accuse him of that, David leaves and gets promptly stabbed uh, to death by Ethan who is in the house.
0: Yes, and who has been monitoring her computer this whole time and knows everything that she's doing because she gave him a key because she thought he needed a safe place to go. So then they have this big chase scene. And then finally, uh, she pushes him through a skylight, which has been established early on as a um, you know part of the house that's about to fall apart. And then yeah. she wakes up in the hospital. And here we come to what I think is really the climax of the book in terms of what this book is about. Which is the moment when the detective comes into her, her hospital room to tell her what's going on. Now, in an action movie, obviously the confrontation with the bad guy and the, the defeat of the bad guy, you know, at the you know, when all hope seems lost, is the climax of the film. But in this particular type of of, of thriller, at least in the book form, the most important moment is the moment when the male authority figure tells the unreliable heroine or narrator that he was wrong and that she was right all along and that she wasn't crazy after all. Right, right, right. <laughs> she, was right. she was a little
1: crazy, I think.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. And that's <laughs> yeah. sort of the premise of the sort of girl in the train Scenario is that there's this narrator or main character whose point of view we see the story through, and she is a woman that people think is unbalanced, and she also thinks she's unbalanced and um and the girl on the train she she was not she, she didn't have a diagnosed mental illness, but she was an alcoholic and she was obsessed with her ex-husband. Um, which is why she was staring out the window at this particular street, where she saw the murder that she saw. There's a lot of window peering in in, in yeah. these stories, and um, and nobody believes her because you know she's a histrionic drunk. And in this case, no one believes Anna because um, she is on these new meds, and she is clearly just you know one step away from a full on nervous breakdown and the things that she says don't make any sense. Um, and, but in the end, she's proven right, which is the really important thing about this particular genre of thrillers is that the woman that everyone says is crazy and who even comes to believe them is proven to be right in the end. Okay, we're going to pause this conversation briefly to hear a word from our sponsors Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And now, back to the show.
1: Yeah, I mean, and that's interesting because that's a scene that you don't get in sort of the classic Hitchcock. I mean, Hitchcock's protagonists are men primarily and he, he doesn't, like, you don't have that. There's nothing wrong with Jimmy Stewart except his leg. Well, and he's a voyeur, but uh <laughs> he's not, <laughs> not mentally ill. So you don't have this thing of, Uh, Even, uh, although in that movie, of course, nobody does believe him that the the guy's a killer. Do the police apologize to him in that? I mean, is that, I don't remember.
0: I don't think so. I don't think that that's, you know, I don't think that that's as important to him, to a character like that, that authority figures who, you know, dismissed him.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, but uh, what I'm wondering is kind of when that became a... Who's the per- first person who did that variation in the genre? Because obviously, thematically, that that you can get into a lot of interesting stuff there if you have male authority figures not believing it in women.
0: I think that um, it's super gendered, you know, and and right. I think that "Girl on the Train," if not the first time this was used, it's it's really the whole point of the "Girl on the Train." Sure, and um, and it's a book that was you know, mostly driven by female, you know, its success was mostly driven by female fans and female readers. And one of the things that it does is, is is sort of confirm that even though every, you know, that everyone who says that you're just some crazy woman is wrong and that you're right, <laughs> you know, it's like an exaggerated version of yes. uh, a very common experience for a lot of women. I think sure, that's the secret of that, of that um book's appeal, even though the heroine is flawed, it's not just like in, um what was it? The man who saw too much or a- any number of, of movies where someone sees something and no one believes them. Right. Uh, it, it, it's important that, that the, that the narrator really does have a problem. You know, she really is drinking. She really is mentally ill. And, um, and she has to triumph sort of over that and prove that she's right to, you know, to the police. Yeah. To everybody really.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, And and, I mean, she literally has to overcome her agoraphobia to to make it out of the movie alive. She has to, um, make it up to the roof to avoid Ethan or whatever. So there's like a very literal sense in which she's triumphing over her, you know, mental illness or whatever as, as, as well there. But, but yeah, so she gets that vindication from the cops and then we cut to nine months later and she has sold her house and without any, it being any big crisis, she leaves the front door, so she's apparently-
0: Yeah, she's dead. all better. Yeah. Although all these people are dead.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> her self-actualization her self, uh, came at a terrible cost to the neighborhood.
0: But yeah, her, her, well, to Katie and to her tenant and, and also- Yeah, no, like, I mean,
1: I think it's she's probably making the right choice moving out of there. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, but Not I did enough. think that that was weirdly super unpersuasive because this is a woman who is very, very traumatized yes. by her role her responsibility for this car accident that killed her family and none of that has changed. <laughs> um yeah, no, exactly. You know, it's right. not like this experience proved that, you know, she wasn't to blame. Right. Um second, I think probably the strongest scenes in the movie are her making her suicide recording, video. yeah, her video. And her confrontation with Ethan, where he is, says, like, why don't you just kill yourself? I just want to watch. And she says, okay, I don't want to live in a world with you in it. You know, you know, like, if if you're what this world is about, it's just filth, I think, which is kind of a great line. And then, um, but instead, she, you know, she hits him with a bottle and, and, and runs and then they, and finally defeats him. But, um, but, you know, it, it's also still a world that had him in it. Yeah, that's what I'm saying.
1: Like, she's very convincing in that moment. It, like, this is a woman who doesn't wish to live anymore and 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 thinks, well, Jesus, you know. And, and there's not, she doesn't really ever say that she feels any differently. She just starts smashing him with the wine bottle or whatever. And it, and and she gets, uh, I mean, she has like a garden break or something smashed through her cheek in the source of this. If she's someone who doesn't react well to trauma, like... Nine months seems like a pretty short time to get over yes, that.
0: She's entire actually physically killed someone and she, and she it's not the kind of thing where it's not the kind of movie thing where like they, you know, back up when she swings like a shovel and then they accidentally fall he accidentally falls through the roof. She literally pushes him through the skylight and kills yeah. him. Yeah. No, totally. Um. She has slipped in her tenant's blood, and she, they you know, must <laughs> know that she's responsible also for his death. Right. Um. And you know, it's uh, it it, it just seems like recovery like the the, it just seems like for someone that fragile
1: well we don't see where she's going when she leaves maybe she's going straight off to to bellevue or something to work through the rest of this stuff in
0: in a cab i don't think (laughs) (laughs) you know it has this sort of thing well now that she's killed the psychotic teenage murderer which is also like a ghastly thing for anyone to have confronted you know it's like this this terrible person
1: well and he's the total like 90s serial killer you know he gives he gives a lot of um uh he does a lot of monologuing during the last fight let's say yeah like that 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 kind of thing like it, it uh uh you, you couldn't it's it was <laughs> it wasn't one of those just normal you know everyday encounters with a teenage serial killer he really <laughs> went he really got into it
0: he's into his super villain uh, <laughs> yeah yeah, so it's just, I, it's it's super unpersuasive that she would recover, but, you know,
1: again. But it, it's, I mean, it's, again, it's one of those things where it's just moving swiftly through these plot points yeah. um, more than it is about any any actual human beings. Oh, but speaking of actual human beings, uh, this film has a couple of uh, doozies associated with it. Um, and one of them is is Dan Mallory, the author, A.J. Finn or whatever, who was the subject of a Pretty scathing New Yorker profile after the book came out. Did you uh, follow that whole thing?
0: Yeah, he was a you know a, someone who worked in book publishing, who um, turned out to be a kind of a serial liar, you know, and had 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 told people all kinds of wild stories about his family. He he, he had a kind of track record of saying that his mother was dying of cancer and. Um, you know, sometimes lying just for the sake of lying. I mean, I don't know that you know, obviously he's <laughs> a serial killer, but it is a little <laughs> bit weird that he's, you know he was he's purportedly i never met him myself. Yeah, I was
1: going to ask you're kind of cute into that world, right?
0: Yeah, but I know. I, I, I don't recall having met him. I do know. I did know people who, who did. And, you know, after this, this, uh, New Yorker expose came out, they were like, Oh, I always thought he was too slick, but clearly he was just someone who was very, very charming. Um, who sort of was able to convey this sort of bon vivant, old school publishing, you know, and uh, like I sort of imagine him as trying to be like one of these legendary editors, like Michael Corder, Bob Gottlieb, where um, they were just like, you know, at the center of of this sparkling circle and could talk for hours and be fascinating. And, and, um, and, you know, lived in a townhouse and and you know was always having lunch with like famous writers and you know politicians and celebrities that were that you know were writing memoirs and and there was a kind of old school publishing glamour that he was able to sort of create around himself that sort of kept people from really um well first of all helped him succeed because publishing is a business where like the ambiance is part of how you keep your staff because it doesn't pay well. And so it's like, you want to be literary, you want to know writers, you want to be part of a, like kind of a fun and sort of glamorous industry. And that's why you accept abysmal entry-level salaries. Uh, So, you know, like people who can create a sort of, um, Glamour and an aura around the business do have a weird sort of value, but I mean, he didn't really do any kind of work, and you know, was completely unreliable. And 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 sure. when it all came out,
1: what I mean is he is he still, he was still working and publishing when that thing was published, right? The the profile is, is he is he not anymore? Or did, I don't know what he's I think doing. Now.
0: he quit once the book became such a hit.
1: Yeah, okay. yeah, he wouldn't. I mean, he probably doesn't have to work again.
0: Yeah. So that was that was that's a kind of I mean, in a way, that's a more fascinating story than this thriller plot. Obviously, it doesn't have as any corpses in it, but um, but it's just so much more full of human weakness and 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 uh, complexity than yeah. the woman in the window.
1: But I thought that they were both a little bit of a piece in that the impression I get from the New Yorker profile is like this is a guy who will think very hard about what. You want to hear, and that's what he will tell you. You know, like I don't think it's so much. I mean, you talked about him creating kind of like an old school publishing mythos. Uh, I mean, I, I agree, but I don't know to the extent to which that's for him, and the extent to which that's for the people that he was sort of, you know, manipulating or working with or whatever. Right? Like, oh well, yeah, uh, but I mean, the, the novel struck me as like somebody sat down and thought for a long time. What do
0: what, to, what What do other people want? Yes, which are, is yeah, the sociopathic <laughs> thing that that Ethan does with with Anna Fox, you know right, he right
1: right figures
0: out what kind of person is going to sort of appeal to her so that he can use her yeah and exactly. um, yes, I, I, he, definitely, but I mean, the people in publishing are so hungry for that that he really <laughs> you can do that. Is a weird sort of asset.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I, yeah. I, uh, I, 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 it wasn't something where I was like, oh wow, everybody's getting duped by this. I was like, oh yep, this is what they want. Here's the thing. <laughs> he, he delivered it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and this is also actually this is the first Scott Rudin production to come out since the Hollywood Reporter story about him. Did that was that something on your mind watching this, or did that color it at all for you? Uh,
0: I guess it's It's really difficult to you know this is not like if if all he had ever been responsible for was movies like this, it would have seemed maybe if they, if this makes a lot of money and 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 people in Hollywood consider it a success, maybe that will add to the sort of weird way that Scott Rudin's genuine creative gifts as a as a producer. Kind of helped him get away with his monstrous behavior as a as a boss sure. but um but if they were all movies like this, I don't <laughs>
1: think he'd yeah be that would
0: blind to sort of make excuses for it
1: that was actually that was the thought I had is that like for the last month or whatever, we've been hearing people talking about Rudin's exceptional and extraordinary taste or whatever and and I mean, you know I mean he's got taste, but it's not an evidence here this is a movie that is just producer bait, you know, like, I mean, like the, like the whole thing was sort of like that. It, it all like book and movie, both just feel a little soulless, but like, it it definitely hits all of these points. And um, me thinking through it, I was like, yeah, this is not, if this is, if this is Scott Rudin's taste, I don't know what we're, what we're talking about.
0: Here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, well, I, we should probably be clear that, that as a piece of entertainment, it's fine. Many people yeah. will watch it and be like, Oh, you know, um, you know, there's a few really cool shots in it. You know, I feel like the scene where she looks, at just before she's making the the suicide video where she, she looks into the lens of her phone has this, uh, gave me a real genuine sort of chill. There's something about the merciless eye of that phone camera right. that that shot captured. And that phone is such a, you know, plays such a crucial role in her life, you know, and 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 it it sort of has this kind of atmosphere, yeah. and it has some really good performances on some kind of weak material, right? And like people who just want a popcorn movie on a Friday night will probably be perfectly satisfied with it.
1: <laughs> no, I, I mean I, I agree, and actually, yeah, watch it go on to to sweep the awards. Now that I've, I've said I wasn't a big fan, but um, but. Uh, yeah, I'm interested in hearing from people who see the movie who haven't read the book or don't know any of the backstory either, because I don't know if this. Uh, it's well,
0: the book is exactly the same thing as you've pointed out, Matt. It's 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 a, a kind of a machine for producing a mild state of entertainment, <laughs> and um, I don't and I I don't know that that many people who read it, you know, considered it to be profound, you know? I mean, it's right, just right. that it is, it's so calculated.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, no, exactly.
0: That, and even down to the pseudonym, which is, of course, gender neutral. So, right. um, you know, the thing about these sort of, um, uh, you know, misunderstood Cassandras, which is like a, this genre of thriller, is that those books are almost all written by women. And even if the readers don't say, oh, I really identify with the girl on the train or with Anna Fox or, you know, uh, you know, people say I'm crazy or I'm too emotional and they, no one believes me and <laughs> maybe I drink too much. You know, <laughs> even if people don't come out and say they identify with the, the heroin situation, Sure. And there is some of that. There has to be some of that. That's that's why the formula keeps recurring over and over again, and why it does so well. But I don't know that there's anybody, you know, reading this book and saying, "Oh my God, Anna Fox is me."
1: <laughs> yeah, no, right. It's <laughs> right.
0: just a beach read for most. Well, you
1: know, the, I mean, I got to say, like, I pre- preparing for this. I also went back and watched Copycat, which is the movie that some of the subplots.
0: Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that because the author of Copycat accused Mallory of plagiarizing Copycat. And I know I saw that movie ages ago. It just has Sigourney Weaver and and Holly Hunter in it. And it's set in San Francisco. But I don't really remember anything about it. And I I didn't rewatch it after the accusation surfaced. So I'm curious to hear what you think of that charge.
1: Well, there's two things I would say about it. And the first is that but yeah, of course, there are subplots lifted wholesale out of that into the other thing, just like there are subplots lifted wholesale from Rear Window or from
0: Girl on the Thing.
1: It's kind of working backwards from that stuff. But, it, but it, it is very striking. It's more striking comparing the book to the movie than it is comparing the movie to the movie because they cut out some of the stuff. But Sigourney Weaver plays, she's, you know, it's one of those post-Silence of the Lamb serial killer wave movies. Uh, so she plays a tough sort of profiler who had this traumatic experience when a a serial killer uh, tracked her down and tried to hang her in a bathroom or something. Anyway, that gave her agoraphobia. So she lives in her apartment, which she cannot leave. um, And a killer is stalking San Francisco. And Holly Hunter is the, you know, uh, Clarice Starling figure. She's an FBI agent, or I guess she's a San Francisco cop. Anyway, she is trying to get Sigourney Weaver out of her house to help with this case. But it's the same thing. She's being uh, stalked and, and, uh, you know, and, and, and copycat takes that from what is it? The, um, what's the Audrey Hepburn movie where she's blind and stuck in her house.
0: Wait until dark.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's, it's that thing. It's the woman stuck at home who can't leave, um, being, being, uh, stalked yeah. by people. Um, and she passes her time by playing online chess, which is something that is in the book of the woman in the window. And by participating in like an online forum for agoraphobes where she sort of, uh, you know, uh, talks people through getting out of the house. Um, and both of those elements get show up.
0: Yeah, we don't really see in the movie how much the internet becomes Anna's sort of contact with the world. Yeah. And then how she can be deceived by that. You know, she. I
1: mean... Yeah, there's an entire subplot where Ethan is like pretending to be an agoraphobe on this forum and catfishes her and that's how he finds out all of her stuff in in the book and that's just not here at all. Um but again, like that's the one thing from it that in Copycat there's no catfishing theme, but but those stuff when that in in that movie it's just like yeah, that's that's just exactly yeah. the same thing. But again, like I I don't like plagiarism. It's you know, it's a premise. It's not
0: Well, they, it, it, again, it's such a formulaic um, genre yeah. that the fact that motifs are used like the rear window motif or the or a or the woman trapped in a house. Right.
1: Motif. Or the, the, the character treated as living who's dead. Yeah. So, there is no Ambrose way. Bruce um, Beers could come back and see them over. <laughs>
0: there's no way that once agoraphobia became a sort of mental illness that people we're talking about in the popular press that somebody wasn't going to use it in a thriller. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. just, you know, all of these things are, are,
1: well, I mean, are, I, I, a billion percent believe that that Mallory got the idea f- of making his character an agoraphobe from watching copycat, but because it's just, it just is the same thing. I just don't think it's, I don't think there's any real, I think if that's a crime, then there are like 90 people with claims to plagiarism yeah. in this movie. And I, I just, it's not close enough for me to, to care.
0: It's an interesting question that comes up um, now and then with a really successful genre authors. You know, we'll, every once in a while, someone will kind of go off the deep end and, and sue somebody else for plagiarism for these devices that have been used in like a Jillian paperbacks. Right,
1: right, right.
0: I wrote a piece for Slate about how an author of paranormal romances for adults named Sherilyn Kenyon was suing an author of paranormal romances for the YA crowd named Cassandra Clare over these, you know, fictional devices that are just such cliches of the paranormal romance genre that, you know, it was just a source of merriment for everyone on the internet <laughs> an entire week that someone would try to claim to own them. It's come up with J.K. Rowling with, you know, somebody. Right. Harry Potter was by far not the first series of books about a school for wizards and, and so on and so on. And it's just really, it's really difficult for anyone to really credibly Say that by using these really generic things, like "oh, what if we have a serial killer story where the serial killer plays a cat and mouse game?" <laughs> you know,
1: yeah, no, totally. <laughs> you,
0: you, you, not only can you not plagiarize that from somebody else, that cannot conceivably even belong to anybody. So
1: it belongs to the um, Zodiac killer or something. <laughs> it doesn't belong to anyone. You can, uh,
0: yeah, uh, let's, let's sue the Zodiac killer for.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, but the the other thing that I was going to say about copycat though, is that it, uh, I found it to be, uh, more entertaining than the woman in the window, frankly, uh, because it doesn't have, it's just a straight genre, nineties serial killer movie. It's, it's ridiculous. There's nothing going on to it, but it doesn't have these huge flights of fancy where suddenly we're going to do a, you know, technical or red dream sequence or whatever. It, It doesn't do the Hitchcock thing. And, um, that this does and i found that to be just a, a
0: well also don't you think and that that if you have a movie where you have these two characters you can build a relationship between them you know there's holly hunter wants sigourney weaver to come out and help her with this case and sigourney weaver is too scared but in this you know anna is really on her own right and nobody really understands what's going on with her, including her therapist. And the one person who she seems to be establishing a friendship with, you know, is immediately killed. (laughs) So, you know, all of the drama of the story is kind of internal in a way. All of the character drama is, is internal. Yeah. And, um, and there's no, it's difficult for her to even perform it because there's nobody really for her to talk to. Yeah. So it, I think that, that this is one of those cases where, like, the novel probably has an edge over the film, even though the film is more cinematically stylish than the novel's prose is sort right. of literarily stylish. Just because it's so much about what's going on inside this woman's head, and the movie can't quite show you that.
1: Yeah, I I, I agree with that. Um,
0: how much How much longer can we talk about a movie? Than- <laughs> I don't
1: really like <laughs> yeah i apologize laura it was, uh, it was so fun talking about this movie and book with you so uh thank you so much for having me on the show
0: yeah i really enjoyed it far more than i enjoyed the actual movie
1: <laughs> <laughs> all right that's your show today please subscribe to the Slate spoiler special podcast feed and if you like the show please rate and review it in the apple podcast store or wherever you get your podcasts If you have suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil, or if you have any other feedback you'd like to share, please send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer is Morgan Flannery. For Laura Miller, I'm Matt Desson. Thanks for listening.
0: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen The Bride and groom?